Hear the gospel of the Lord, which begins in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Just prior to our text this morning, the gospel lesson which was just read from Luke chapter 11, just prior to that, Jesus was asked to teach his disciples to pray. And he responds to that request with what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. Luke's version is a bit condensed compared to Matthew's version. Matthew's version is the one that we pray here every week. And this set of petitions in the Lord's Prayer, from the very lips of Jesus, has been prayed, and it's been a model for Christian prayer, a framework for it ever since. Although there are, in the prayer, six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, we can profitably sum them up under three headings. The Lord's Prayer has to do really with three things. First, the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All concerned with the glory of God. Second, our legitimate needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And the third thing is our salvation. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And so that's the grid upon which all prayer must operate. And everything we pray should be tested against or fall underneath one of those petitions. The glory of God, our our basic needs, and our salvation. And yet it's clear from our parable this morning, that having given the Lord's Prayer, Jesus feels that he has not said quite enough. And so here in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5, he tells a short parable. He follows it with an exhortation. So we'll make two points. The parable, which is in verses 5 through 8. And second, the exhortation. 
the exhortation, which is in verses 9 through 13. The parable and the exhortation. So first, the parable. It's a simple enough parable. Uh, All of verses 5 through 7 are one rhetorical question. It's one long question. This is indicated by the opening words. Suppose, suppose one of you has a friend. This this marks everything Jesus is about to say as a question. And it's a question which expects an emphatic no, no, for an answer. So the force of Jesus' opening here is something like this. Can you imagine a situation like this? Or would you believe it if I told you the following story? And the story he tells is meant to be ridiculous. Even a little humorous. The question is, can you imagine if one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine, it's a little hard to keep all the friends straight, you go to your friend and say, I have a friend of mine who has come on a journey And I have nothing to set before him. And then the one inside answers, don't bother me now. The door's already locked. And my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Question mark. That's the whole little story Jesus tells. Question mark. He's saying, can you imagine this scenario? And the answer is no. None of Jesus' hearers could imagine this scenario. And the reason that the scenario is unthinkable is because Middle Eastern notions of hospitality forbid this kind of behavior. So in this world, inns you know, are not numerous, and they were often dangerous and corrupt. And so this man must, he must, he must provide hospitality for his friend who has arrived, regardless of what time he shows up. He can't say, hey, just go down to the Motel 6. In fact, in a small village like this, the whole town would consider itself under obligation to help, if necessary. And so, in spite of their poverty, they would not provide, you know, some minimal... They're not going to put out cookies and milk. They're going to provide a substantial meal even if the guest shows up in the middle of the night. Notice the request for three, three loaves of bread. And that would almost certainly be just a portion of the meal provided. The bread would be used to just dip into the main courses. So, you have this story, and you have the sleeping man's excuses. They might fly in modern America. But they're just impossible in this culture. The host is out of bread. And by the way, he knows his friend has bread. There's no question in this. He's not saying, hey, if you have three loaves of bread, can I have them? He says, give me three loaves of bread. How does he know? Well, because they cook outside in this culture, probably in communal settings. He knows that his neighbor has the bread. And so the community knows that it's required to show neighborliness to visitors who are friendly. And this visitor is a friend of the host. 
After all, Israel's wisdom tradition in the book of Proverbs says, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it to you then. So, it's unthinkable to Jesus' audience that a sleeping man would respond this way. It's just a, a breach of basic moral obligations. And none of the reasons he gives, and the reasons he gives, they're true to life, but none of them would suffice. So you're in a small Middle Eastern village. In this time, the houses would be very small, usually just a sitting room, maybe a place to eat, a small dining area, and one bedroom. The whole family would sleep on a mat on a raised platform. Thus, the line about the children being in bed with the man is true to life because everyone's in the same bed. And the whole house would be dark, of course. And the door, which would be open during the day, would have been shut a long time ago. It might have some sort of makeshift bolt on the inside. Often animals would sleep on the front, in the floor in the house. So notice the rudeness of the sleeping man. I mean, those among us who are not rude when they're waking up have special grace, I suppose. It's, it, it's a, certainly a test it, uh, of, of how you respond when you're waking up. This, this man is addressed as friend. He gets like a sort of a knock at the door and the voice outside says, friend. But he doesn't return the courtesy. In verse 7 he says, don't bother me. Basically get lost, right? And then he gives the trivial, trivial excuse that the door is shut and my children are sleeping. I mean, but he's already been awakened by the call of his friend at the door. I mean, the noisy part of the request is already over. I mean, the friend, the friend is not asking for an extraordinary work of charity here. That's important to see. There's no Herculean effort required. The man would actually have to get up, walk over to the door, open the door, and hand his friend some bread. That's the request. It's not too much to ask, is it? Reminds me of the modern man who said he sat on his couch all night because his remote broke, and who gets up now and manually changes the channels? He said, if I'm going to have to get up and manually change the channels, I might as well just go to the gym. <laughs> so I just sat on the couch all night. So this guy, the sleeping man, he's being lazy. And he's being unneighborly. And so at the end of verse 7, he puts it bluntly. He says, I cannot get up. It's too much. I can't get up and I can't give you anything. As often is the case here, I cannot simply means I will not. And so Jesus has told the parable in such a way that this sleeping man is a caricature of everything a Palestinian neighbor should be. And even though this guy is... Uh, is who he is, Jesus gives this word of assurance in verse 8. He says that even in a ridiculous hypothetical situation like this, the host can still obtain his request. 
You can still get what you need. He says, and I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Right? Jesus' point here is, even if the bond of friendship doesn't motivate the sleeping guy to get up, there's something else that will. And you see that something else in the second half of verse 8, where, where the text says, because of his boldness. In fact, some translations here say because of his impotence. Right? In other words, because of his shameless persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. His shamelessness, his boldness, his brazen face, if you will. This refers to the host's boldness in making the request on behalf of his visiting friend. And so Jesus is making a very simple point. Look, friendship doesn't prevail sometimes, if you, but, but even if you meet a guy like this, what will prevail is shameless boldness and persistence. And notice the result, Jesus says, the sleepy man will eventually get up. Man, at a certain point, it's easier to get up, right, than, than to keep telling the person at the door to go away. He's eventually going to get up and give him not only bread, but whatever, the text says, or as much as he needs. So that's the parable. And Jesus, his exhortation begins in verse 9. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It's often been pointed out, rightly, that these are continuous tense, present tense verbs, meaning keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You keep asking, you'll receive. You keep knocking, seeking, you'll find. You keep knocking, the door will be opened. And notice that Jesus is absolute. He's utterly absolute about this in verse 10. He says, everyone, every last person who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And, the, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. He makes no exceptions. But here I want to make a, a few caveats. I want to say three things about this exhortation or this promise from the Lord. And the first thing I want to say here is we have to remember what we said at the outset. The framework, the grid for this exhortation is the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus is saying something like this. God will always, He will always vindicate His glory. He will always supply what you need. You can't always get what you want, but God will supply your daily bread, your needs. And He will always answer prayers for forgiveness and deliverance from evil. So the, these verses, verses 9 and 10, if you isolate them, you just lift them out of their context, they lead to this whole name it, claim it thing. Ask and you'll receive and seek and you'll find and knock and it'll be opened. So that it, they'll lead to nonsense, frankly. But worse than that, they can lead to great spiritual disillusionment when people find that such things don't, do not happen. It, so this is why it's so important to read these sorts of promises in the context that they're placed in in Holy Scripture by the Spirit. If you are asking and seeking, 
and knocking about the content of the Lord's Prayer, you will not be disappointed. And that's what we desperately need. We need prayer that's driven by the priorities of the Lord's Prayer. The hallowing of God's name in the earth, the coming of His kingdom, the doing of His will, and then our needs and our salvation. So if you look, even casually, at the Apostle Paul's prayers in the New Testament, you will see that they're profoundly unlike much of our praying. And we've mentioned this in here before. In fact, on the, on the prayer sheet, the February prayer sheet, as in every month, that first petition, we, we request that you pray through that prayer in Ephesians 1 and the prayer in Ephesians 3 for the elders, the deacons, and the whole church. You look at the priorities that drive the apostles' prayer life in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Those are the things that should drive our prayer life together. Paul invariably prays for the full revealing of the glory of Christ in the church. He has a passion for this. He prays for the sanctification, the illumination, the maturation of the body of Christ. He prays for the progress of the gospel. That stuff is in view in this parable. So there's no license in this text to view God as an errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires. So that's the first, the first caveat. The second one is this. What we're being called to here is to imitate the man's shameless boldness. Right? We're to imitate him, and we can be shameless and bold and persistent because he has a legitimate right to expect what he's asking for from his neighbor. That's why Jesus told the parable this way. If we're coming before God knowing that we have a legitimate title to the things for which we are asking, that they are the things he has promised, then we should be bold and persistent and forthright. But if we're asking for stuff that has to do with our own particular whims and desires, it's okay. You may be able to ask for those things, but you have no title to them. You have no promise for them. And you're not encouraged to be persistent about it. So the writer to the Hebrews, puts it this way. He says, we're to have boldness to enter the holy place, the place of prayer, by the blood of Jesus. We can draw near, in this case, with full assurance of faith when we ask according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Confident that we'll receive. Remember, Jesus himself sensed here that when he gave the outline of the Lord's Prayer, that it was not quite sufficient, that something needed to be added to it. We said that at the outset. What needed to be added is persistence. If you have the, if you have the pattern of the Lord's Prayer shaping your prayer life and you add persistence to it, there's really almost nothing else that needs to be said or done about Christian prayer. It needs to be structured the way Paul's prayers are structured, the way the Lord's prayer is structured, and those things have to be persistently sought. And when we do this, we find we're often praying for the wrong things or indifferent things or the things that God is not particularly interested in doing. 
So a kind of vigor, a kind of determination has to be supplied from our side. The Lord's Prayer is like the car, but this persistent, shameless boldness is the fuel. The Lord's Prayer is like the car, persistence is the fuel. One of the um, greatest treatises on prayer ever written, and this may surprise you, it is, it is in John Calvin's uh, chapter on prayer. It's in book three of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which everyone should have. I, have, I had a seminary professor who, uh, who said everyone should have the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and a poor, a poor young lady in the class raised her hand and said, but professor, it's very expensive, $50. And he said, do you have a bed? And she said, uh, what do you, what do you, yeah, of course I have a bed. He said, sell your bed, buy the book. <laughs> sleep, on, sleep on the floor. That's how important the book is. Um, so I commend this chapter on prayer in book three of the Institutes to you very highly. It's moving, it's convicting, it's a pastoral piece of writing. You know, if you think Calvin is one of these Calvinists who says, well, everything's predestined, don't worry about praying. Well, there's a surprise for you in store when you read this chapter. He says that all the treasures of God are laid up in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he says, clothed in the Gospels. Christ is the treasure house of God's goodness and gifts to us, he says. But he goes on to say, the thing that remains is for us to dig out those treasures by arduous, persistent prayer. Christ is this, is this treasure house, but Calvin says there's no appropriating these riches apart from this shameless, bold, persistent labor. Words, Calvin says, fail to express how important prayer is. Because the riches of God and Christ can just stay there outside of yourself, outside of your life, afar off, if you're not going to dig them out and you dig them out by prayer. And so if we want to see God do great things in the earth, great things here and through us at Westminster Presbyterian Church, well, we can reduce this to two words. Pray more. Pray more and pray the right way with the right sets of priorities. And this brings me to my, the, the third caveat, third sub-point to this ask, seek, knock. There's a clear call in the text to persistence, to continual kind of arduous labor. But it's very important to see this, I think. Persistence is not repetition. It's not sheer repetition. God is not coaxed or manipulated by our repetition. That's a pagan idea. So when we, when we take this notion of we need to be persistent, we need to be shameless and bold like the man was in the parable, we have to remember the context of the Lord's Prayer and the context that God is our Father. Right? You wouldn't ask your Father for the same thing 37 times in one day, would you, if you're a child? That wouldn't go well. I'm just trying to be shameless like the man in the parable, Daddy. Right? You're going to end up in your room. Um, 
But if it was something your father promised, you would, you would remind him of it. Seasonably. And, you know, and, and at regular intervals. As long as the need persisted and the promise was not yet fulfilled. So persistence here means seasonably, on the right occasions, across long periods of time, reminding God of what He has promised. In one sense, that is the definition of Christian prayer. It's reminding God of what He's already committed to do. So little of what we pray is actually that, isn't it? It's a fine line, I understand that. Sometimes it can be difficult to, to, to get this spot. Am I, just, am I being persistent or am I involved in some sort of magic where I think if I keep repeating this, God will eventually hear and do it? It is a fine line, but God doesn't have a counter waiting for you to cross some threshold. He's your Father and He will give you the things contained in the Lord's Prayer. So he wants persistence. He doesn't want magic repetition, incantation. And that brings us to the conclusion of the text. It's in verses 11 through 13. And here the point is precisely that God is not like the sleeping man. It's a very simple point. God is not like the sleeping man. He's your father. He's not asleep in heaven conjuring up excuses as to why he won't answer your legitimate requests. We often think, I have so many unanswered prayer requests. It can challenge our faith, can't it? There's things we want, they don't happen. They don't happen for years. They don't happen for decades. They don't ever happen. The opposite happens a lot of the time. And we get discouraged. But part of the answer, not all of the answer, but a, a large part of the answer here is what are you praying for? Because if you're praying to be made holy and to be conformed to the image of Christ and to participate in His glory through the fellowship of His sufferings, if you're praying to be enlightened in the hope of the eschatological kingdom, well, He's doing those things. And He's doing them all the time, every day, 24-7. Those are the things He's doing. The specific list of things we have, he may or may not be doing those. But we know what he's doing. So part of our disillusionment, I think, is, is healed by shifting the center of gravity to the things we know he's doing. He wants you to love the brethren more. He wants you to reflect his son more. He wants the gospel of the kingdom to advance. Now, we have a whole raft of private and personal things, which are fine. They're legitimate. We bring them to our Father. But He hasn't told us what, it, what His will is on, men, on many or most of those. So, God is not the sleeping man. He's going to answer our legitimate requests. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Verse 12, if, if you ask for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Snakes and scorpions being, of course, dangerous, and no, no human father would respond this way. This is, this is kind of an important qualifier to the note of persistence. Persistence is not called for because God is a grudging or ungenerous or sleeping father. Whatever the reason for persistence must, might be, it can't be because God is peevish. That's the importance of uh, 
of this notion from Calvin that it's Christ clothed in his gospel, Calvin says, who's the source of our wealth. It's Christ, in other words, it's the Father who gave the Son. The Father who's beneficent and turned and fully inclined to you, who has turned his face to you in Jesus Christ. He is the one who with the Son wills freely to give you all things in him and with the Son. So in other words, the God to whom we are praying has already given us everything. Everything. All. So where are you looking? Where are you digging? Dig where the gift is. In Jesus Christ. And so then persistence becomes a means by which God draws us into communion with Himself and with His purposes in the earth as outlined in the Lord's Prayer. Finally, in verse 13, there's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you then, though you are evil, meaning we are sinners, compared to God's gracious fatherhood, all human fathers fall short. If you human fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now this could be a surprising ending to this text. We sort of expect Jesus to say, and in fact, he does say this in Matthew's version of this parable. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But here, interestingly enough, there's a twist. Jesus, instead of saying good things, says, How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit? It turns out that all the good things that we can ask of God reduce to this. The gift of the Spirit of the ascended and risen Christ. Now that should change the way we look at prayer, and especially the way we think about the notion of persistent asking, seeking, knocking. It turns out at the end of the day we're asking and seeking and knocking for one and only one thing, the gift of the Spirit of the ascended and risen Christ. And so now we're full circle with what we said at the beginning. It turns out that this text, this parable, is about the reception of the Holy Spirit. Think of how far afield interpretations are that lift this ask, seek, knock text out of this context, right? And never can connect the dots to the fact that what we're asking and what we're seeking and what we're knocking for is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we receive all the benefits of the Lord's Prayer. It's by the Spirit that we come to know God as our Father in Jesus Christ. It's in the Spirit that we pray and that we dig out the treasures that are laid up for us in Christ. It's the Spirit's presence, the Spirit's power, which is always our desperate need and the desperate need of the church. Right? The world and the church are like Ezekiel's field of bones. God has to breathe on them for them to come to life. And so the Spirit, then, is, in the words of what will be our closing hymn, He is the best of all donations God can give or we implore. Having your sweet consolations, we need ask, we need ask for nothing more.
If we're calling upon the Spirit of God to hallow the Father's name, to bring the kingdom, to subjugate us and all men to His will on earth as it is in heaven, to give us our daily bread, if we're calling upon the Spirit to supply our needs as the Lord and giver of life, to cleanse us from sin, to lead us not into temptation, to deliver us from evil, then our Father will hear our asking and our seeking and our knocking. So the heart, the fuel of all prayer is in the closing words of the same hymn. Come with unction and with power on our souls your graces shower. Author of the new creation, Make our hearts your habitation. Praise be to God, our Heavenly Father, for He will give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Amen.